are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Tonight, we are discussing medications for alcohol use disorder. And just before we started this recording, Paula and I have been talking and Paula brought up the most interesting point that I think is so relevant. So often when patients are discharged from the hospital, their discharge instructions are just stop drinking and they're not offered any other treatment. And I'm hoping that your takeaway from this episode is we can do better. We have evidence-based treatments that work and we keep trying. If one doesn't work, we try another one. Yeah, well, I mean, it's common and it's tempting and it's bewildering to those of us who haven't experienced addiction ourselves is we just think, no, just stop. Like your liver is failing, your life is falling apart, you have uh, pancreatitis for the fifth time and it's miserable, clearly just stop drinking. And it's just not as easy as that. If it was, people would not be in this situation. Mm -hmm. Ask any of them. They just wouldn't be there, but it's just not that easy. And we have medications that can help them. And and so you have, you specifically talk about this a lot, Paula, about where they are kind of in that cycle with the cycle of addiction, you know? And so if you want to touch on that a little bit. Right, right. So I think of, and I teach residents and medical students and fellows uh, based on the work of George Poob, um, who is the, you know, the, the, the head of the NIAAA, um, all his really progressive and important work on the cycle of addiction and the neurobiology of such. Yes. Yeah, how much we've learned and how we can um, consider the use of pharmacotherapy for people with alcohol use disorder by gaining a bigger or greater understanding of how addiction affects the brain, central nervous system. So when people begin to switch from normal drinking or risky drinking into actual addicted type of drinking. There are actual changes that occur in the brain. And we know this from PET scans. We know this from um, fMRIs. Uh, Nora Volkow has also been instrumental in a lot Mm -hmm. of this work. She's the head of uh, NIDA, an amazing scientist and physician. But you think about the cycle of addiction and you break it down simplistically into three phases, Darlene. Okay. You have this binge or an an intoxication phase as described by George Koob. So this clearly is when people are using this is when they're drinking, actively participating in alcohol. We're just going to talk about alcohol today. So they are drinking, it's going down, it's causing all of the effects in the CNS that you would expect from alcohol. And alcohol is kind of a messy drug, right? It doesn't just act on dopamine, it acts on dopamine, GABA, serotonin, norepinephrine, glutamate, etc. And the areas of the brain that light up when people are intoxicated or binging the alcohol are the dorsal striatum, the VTA, so the ventral tegmental area of the brain, and the cerebellum. Well, if you remove that state, so people stop drinking, they've beyond that phase, they've metabolized and they get out of the phase where they're periodically or chronically drinking, they may withdraw, they likely withdraw if they have an alcohol use disorder because one of the criteria, right, one of the effects we see with chronic drinking is withdrawal. And they also develop a negative affect. And this is really important. And we're, beco- we're becoming more interested in this negative affect 
aspect of the cycle of addiction because we used to only think that addiction was salient in terms of the intoxication reward aspect of the cycle. Mm -hmm. But we're finding that the negative aspect part of the cycle is much more important in driving the cycle. So you see folks that are actively in withdrawal, clearly they're miserable, they have all these autonomic effects and they have a psychological effect too, right? Especially with alcohol, you see anxiety, you see insomnia, you may see depression, um, but they feel just down, negative affect. They may have extreme anxiety. Who feel really anhedonic and dysphoric in this phase are opioid users. Uh, Absolutely. But with alcohol, yeah, with alcohol and benzodiazepine withdrawal, people just feel yucky. Part of the cycle uh, lives in the brain, in the amygdala both the basolateral amygdala and the central amygdala. And, you know, from our neuro uh, days from medical school, we all remember that the amygdala simplistically is associated with a fear response. So if you can just remember that your patients, when they are withdrawing or are without their substance, and it may not even be in the acute withdrawal phase, it may be weeks or months later. So they're what we consider sober and we think life should be fantastic for them, but for some reason that they're not happy. It's because the amygdala is in overdrive and they may also have a great increase in uh, stress hormone release. So we see um, corticotropin uh, relief- releasing factor increase in substance P, uh, norepinephrine, etc. And the amygdala is just firing all charges go. People literally are in fear. And that's coming from the brain. It's not that they're thinking, oh man, I, I just don't feel good without my substance. This is a CNS effect. Um, and, it, and it actually leads to the last phase or the next cycle of part of the cycle, which is preoccupation or anticipation, right? Yeah. And that isn't, what's the other word for that? basically craving craving or urge to use yeah so george Kube called it preoccupation and anticipation and this lives in the prefrontal cortex and in the hippocampus which is really fascinating because if you think about the prefrontal cortex that that's just before we even make an executive decision the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. lights up and our so memories ur- Yes, your memories. It's where um, drug, it's what we call drug induced cueing comes from. It lives in the prefrontal cortex. People may not even realize that they're being triggered. It could be a smell, a place, a picture, commercial on TV, a date. The prefrontal cortex kicks in and you have this intense preoccupation with this, with alcohol or anticipation to drink again. And the hippocampus, you know, that's what makes us breathe and drink water and eat food and survive, right? So when you think about the hippocampus being involved in this stage of the cycle of addiction, this literally survival. This is the survival part of the midbrain telling the person, unless you drink again, you might die. That's how that's how important it is. And then, of course, the cycle circles back up to binge intoxication if people actually don't have the tools, whether the psychosocial support, the internal resiliency, or the pharmacotherapy and a combination of all three to actually block that preoccupation anticipation phase, they cycle back into binge intoxication and off they go again. So the reason why I think it's important to kind of understand the cycle of addiction and why it's important as providers in understanding this is because you can look at each stage of the cycle of addiction. So binge intoxication, which is basically using, withdrawal negative affect, that's sobriety, and it can be and the negative parts of sobriety, and then craving, and think, where can medication help? Where can a medication target the cycle of addiction? What targets binge intoxication? What helps with preoccupation and anticipation or cravings? And what improves withdrawal and negative affects that we can 
block the cycle right there and get people out of the cycle. This is where I think we can help our patients by thinking, where do they keep tripping up too, right? Yes. Is it just that we block binge intoxication for them? Because how many times, Darlene, have you had a patient who tells you, you know what, I really don't have a problem drinking until I drink. And then as soon as I have that one drink, I'm often running, right? So many, yes. Yeah, so if you had something that just blocked that phase, right, maybe you'd be okay. Or I just had a guy last week who just was telling me, very interesting guy, really lots of resources, you know, financially and socially. But he says when he stops drinking, he just feels terrible. Like he just feels terrible. His mood is bad. He really doesn't have any desire to socialize or go to work. Really, it sounds like clinical depression, but I wonder how much of it is this basal, basolateral central amygdala mm-hmm. paying into it. So that's where we can target. So when we talk about the medications that we use, you know, to treat alcohol use disorder, think about what phase of addiction your patient really struggles with. And you know what, most likely it's all three, but for some people it's one in particular and what medication may be helpful for that particular part of the cycle. I love that you bring this up because, you know, where my practice is primarily I'm seeing patients outpatient. And I think we do this one caveat that many of the medications that we are talking about this is assuming that these patients have completed a medically supervised detox and we're talking about the long term and some of these medications are appropriate to be started during that detox process too i just want to put that out there i think many patients that come to you and i and especially if you're in a primary care practice you will see that A lot of them can get through and seem to cope okay. They get through this binge intoxication cycle. And and it's like you said, they may struggle a little bit with this withdrawal negative effect part, but then they get back into this preoccupation, anticipation, the cravings and those cues in their environment. And, And that's what then triggers this whole cycle all over again. And so, and I think I, and probably in primary care, you're seeing that more than you know and recognize, because I think those ones are maybe the more functional and they're maybe not, because these ones with the withdrawal negative effect are going to go right back. They're going to continue. They're not generally going to stop. They just keep right on going because they feel so terrible. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. You know, so I think those are important to just see, you know, recognizing that. But anyway, we can, I could philosophize forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but I think medications. So there's three basic, right, FDA approved medications. We have naltrexone, the injectable, as it's known, Vivitrol. And then we have a camprosate, known as Camprol, and disulfiram, known as Antabuse. And in fact, this past year, Darlene, as you know, uh, disulfiram was not available because the um, the production of the medication was so hard. Exactly. And it was incredible. We had several patients in our practice who returned to drinking because of lack of access to disulfiram. So, you know, it's kind of like anything in medicine. Not everything works for every person, but something works for some people. So, you know, for some people, it's just the right ticket. And we'll talk about it when we get to it. But yeah, yeah, evidence really does support the use of um, naltrexone and acamprosate. And the the research backing up acamprosate is a little bit more controversial than naltrexone because it's not always replicated. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what the fact is, is we have these three medications, we should be trying one, two, or all three of them for our patients who struggle with alcohol use disorder, remembering that this is a, this is an almost fatal disease. 
Yeah. I mean, it causes so many problems. We should be really going our full the extension of our repertoire in terms of trying to find something that works. It's not just like, oh, well, you know, go maybe go to AA. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we've you, got to keep trying. You keep trying. Exactly. I exactly. love that. You yes. keep trying until you find something that works. And and this is thing you keep adding medications. You don't just, that didn't work. So for instance, if you've start, started disulfiram and that's not working, you add additional medication to it. Yes. If I have a patient on naltrexone that's not working, I add disulfiram. That's very common. That's a common combination that they do. And it works, like you said, it works so well. And I agree with you, it's been so frustrating this past year with lack of access to medication. Yeah, naltrexone, I'll be honest, this, I think, has changed our treatment landscape since this came available, and especially as the injectable, don't you think? I I mean, this is, so a little bit, it's an opiate antagonist. It blocks the endogenous opiate response. And essentially what it's doing is it's blocking the reward effects of alcohol. It reduces right. cravings, and, and that's pretty significant for many patients. The studies do show it, de- it decreases daily drinking, and it decreases the amount of alcohol as well. So don't discount it in the beginning. I think too many discontinue treatment too quickly if the patient doesn't immediately become abstinent. This is one you got to stick in there for the long haul. You would agree? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I find too that sometimes people may not realize how much it's helping them. You know, they started either directly after they've, you know, had medical management of their withdrawal or some other sentinel event that's forced them to stop drinking. For example, they got a DUI or they were admitted for some acute illness associated with their alcohol use. And then they stop drinking naltrexone's on board and they just think, they kind of attribute all of their success to themselves, which I mean, of course they should. However, once naltrexone is withdrawn, or if they have the injectable naltrexone and it wears off, only then do they really realize how much it's been helping. It's its own worst enemy because they don't feel like they're on medicine. They really don't feel any different until it's gone, right? Exactly it's right. very, it is sometimes challenging. Compliance with that medication can be really difficult. But I think having the patient that you don't be on medicine and that's, that's a good thing, but with it. And I, and I, that's the conversation with them to try to improve that compliance so that they can recognize yes. that. Yes. The nitty gritty with it, oral pill, it, if daily, you can increase it up to a hundred milligrams. And I know sometimes you you will do kind of an every other day dosing, but I mean, there's in the literature, you can dose 100 milligrams daily as well. And injectable is 300 milligrams IM, and this is dose weeks. It's recommended starting at least three days after the last drink. Obviously, the patient needs to be opiate-free. Side effects... They can be depression, which is really rare, nausea, vomiting, headaches, dizziness, fatigue, insomnia. I'll be honest, like I don't see that very often when I'm using this with alcohol use disorder. You can see some weight loss, but I don't see really very, very rarely have I ever had to discontinue this for side effects. I agree. We already talked about it with contraindications. Really, this... I mean, there's always this worry about liver damage. I'm always like, alcohol causes liver damage. It, yes. you, have to be, you have to be three to five times the normal range or in 
fulminant liver failure to be contraindicated. They're in acute hepatitis, maybe withhold in it or fulminant liver failure, but very just some liver enzyme elevation is not contraindication. Yes, that's in the labeling. So I think don't be don't be concerned about that. Absolutely be monitoring them. I'm always getting labs and following the patient. We've talked about that in our previous episodes. Very good medication, very effective, and you can combine it with other medications. Anything else? The take messages either in the inpatient or the outpatient setting is there are really no, only two contraindications to starting this. One, someone's on opioids or yes. has had opioid therapy within the prior seven days. Or two, they have fulminant, um, fulminant acute hepatitis. Then I would you know, I would collaborate with the hepatologist or the gastroenterologist before you start it. However, um, the American Gastroenterological Association, um, they made a statement, and I, I don't, I don't want to say this with certainty because since then I can't find the paper, but as far as I can remember, they said for anyone who has cirrhosis even, naltrexone versus continued alcohol drinking um, lends to giving naltrexone yes. in people with cirrhosis. So if you have someone who has a really hot liver, LFTs over, you know, 10 times the upper limit of normal, you may want to wait till it settles down. But other than that, there are really no other contraindications except, of course, algae or someone cites extreme mood problems with the prior administration. This is a very easy medication to start. You just start it and um, it's very well tolerated. And as long as they haven't been taking opioids, it's pretty much a go. Yeah. And this is one of my go-tos. Works very well. Absolutely. Acamprosate, great medicine as well, but difficult. I mean, my challenge is is difficult dosing. And so you have that compliance factor. And we've also struggled with supply on this medication too. But there's same data. I mean, there's been same reviews that does show that can be successful for patients. It's Mechanism of action is a little bit different and interferes with glutamate at the MDMA receptor. It's thought how it's supposed to work and then decrease drinking. Dosing on that, it's two pills of the 333 milligram tablets three times a day. If this person has some elevated renal function, so creatinine clearance 30 to 50, and then you're going to reduce it to one three times a day. So you need to reduce that. But this is for your patients who are hepatically impaired. So this is your option to go ahead and dose that because it's almost entirely renally cleared. Challenges with that, it requires a very compliant patient. They've got to be able to take pills three times a day. This is one that I've had some challenges. It does, it can cause some GI upset with, you know, diarrhea and some, and then some mood disorders, insomnia, anxiety, depression. And I don't see as much of the appetite loss, but that is listed in there as well as some asthenia, you know, so it's just some things to keep and monitor. You just need to monitor that, but this is always an option. So again, there's not a reason to not treat patients if they have, especially if they have those elevated liver functions, you have still an option. I know, I was going to say, I think we hear all the time that acamprosate is not a great option because it's a TID med, but you know, gabapentin is TID and a lot of pa- patients take gabapentin. And do just fine. So yeah. They do just fine. 
So yeah. I think we need to kind of get over that. I mean, it, it ends up being a lot of medication a day because it's six tablets, excuse me. Um, yeah, six tablets a day. But yeah. um, I really do think it's worth it. I find that it's one of those medications, kind of like buspirone. Either people do really well on it or they don't find it's helpful yeah. at all. I really think it's worth trying. I mean, it's not just me. It's a recommended FDA evidence-based. <laughs> evidence-based. There's data. Yep. Right. Um and with the NNT of 12, so which is just as good as a lot of other medications we use. So it's worth a try. It's for those particular patients whose central nervous systems just respond to this particular um, mechanism of action, right? So really, really worth trying, even though you may need to step a little bit cautiously. And I don't know about you, Darlene, but I try and negate the adverse effects by just starting people on one tablet TID, so 333 milligrams TID, for one week and then going up to two tablets TID and see if that kind of minimizes some of the GI upset. Yeah, if I have someone who's never been on it before, I you know, I have some patients who've already been titrated up and are restarting, then they can do okay. All right, so disulfiram, that's this one that this is an old drug. I think most of us are very familiar with it. It's dosed in 250 and 500 milligram. It inhibits aldehyde dehydrogenase which is leads to the buildup of acetaldehyde, and that leads to that very unpleasant effects. This will be on the test. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> those of you who are studying for your boards, this mechanism you need to know. The key difference in this one, and this goes back to the neurobiology <laughs> that we were talking about in that cycle, it does not reduce the cravings. So if you have a patient that that's a very strong thing, that's when I don't use this as their only standalone drug. Like I said, I still use this all the time, but I don't, it's not going to be their only medication that I'm going to use. Yeah. You know, and that's where the evidence can sometimes say it's insufficient evidence to support efficacy, but in a motivated patient, it's, it does reduce drinking days. And, And that's, we've already talked about that. It still can be very effective very helpful in socially risky situations. A patient with a partner who's still drinking in certain family situations and dynamics, this is great. And be familiar, does have a black box warning. You have, you cannot administer this to somebody who is of alcohol intoxication. This is with a patient who is sober. And then other side, it does have some side effects as well. I do see some GI upset. It does have some caution if there's cirrhosis, so you do need to monitor that. There's no no renal dosing for renal impairment, so it can be used. Any other thoughts on that one? No, not really. I mean, it has quite a long list of contraindications. You know, yeah. like you're not supposed to use it in diabetics. You're not supposed to use it in people in history of psychosis, etc. So you do have to be careful. Check the box warnings. Be careful as you proceed. Certainly monitor labs. Um, however, just like you said, I just really agree with you. I think it's a really, really helpful medication. You know, you don't want to give it to a pregnant person. You don't want to, you want to be really careful. However, the right person, this medication can be absolutely life-saving, even temporarily, and especially for certain social situations, like you said. 
You know, I have some patients who are really stable, but they travel for work, or they used to prior to COVID, and they would only take disulfiram when they're going to a conference, for example, or when they're going to a wedding. Um, I had a woman who was doing really well in terms of uh, not drinking alcohol with a history of alcohol use disorder, and she was going backpacking in Europe. And uh, you know how Europe is, <laughs> basically <laughs> beer and wine are just like part of every meal. And so she took disulfiram during her trip to all through Europe. Now, we didn't have a way to monitor her labs, but she, we actually figured out a way while she was over there to just make sure that she was doing okay. But I think it's really helpful. And even though it's a really old medication, you want to bring it up to your patients, bring it up to their families, see how it can build back relationships. It can often be an important part of court-ordered treatment. Um, so if you have those clients, it can be helpful. And like you said, helpful in rebuilding family trust. And a lot of patients are not going to want to use it, not want to take bad, bad experiences with it. Um, so you want to find out and investigate uh, why and what happened and what's their block barrier surrounding that. I, I'm a big fan personally, just as a provider, I think yeah. it can be really, really helpful. We're recording this in October. The holidays are coming up and I absolutely agree with that. There are situations that is a cue for many patients. This is a time when I agree, I do the same thing with certain patients. There's certain times a year when we will just use it. I have some patients who, yes, they're on it 24-7, but then there's others when yeah, we just need to use this for a short period of time, especially when it's so difficult to find right now. We kind of they kind of have to hoard their medication a little bit and space it out. And so we pick those times when it's most difficult. Those are really good discussions to have with your patient on what we can do and recognize what would be helpful for them at this time. That's why we need to look at medications that way. And there's some there are some off-label medications as that you can use as adjunctive. And if they're not tolerating any other medications or there's contraindications that you can look at, and I think both of us use, you know, some of these regularly as well, topiramate, I really like, especially, you know, when you're seeing a lot of additional mood disorders associated with that. And I think those are those patients, like the one you just described, that really struggle with that prolonged, I think, that pause prolonged kind of withdrawal syndrome, I think they need some kind of mood stabilization, wouldn't you agree? And they seem to respond well yes. by add that in addition to either their naltrexone or campersate. Yes, absolutely. Dosing with that, you need to start low with topiramate, 25 milligrams and titrate up. You can go typical 50 to 100 milligrams twice a day. It does have some side effects. Be familiar with that. can cause some dizziness, decreased appetite, fatigue. I'm, I'm a little cautious on some people with a history of kidney stones. You know, it can sometimes mm -hmm. affect that a little bit. So, and there are some other things as well. So just, and then gabapentin, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. This really can help. You know, I have a patient right now. I has been really struggling this can really help. I just added this in addition to their naltrexone. I am very cautious with gabapentin. There are certain patients that this can really help with mood and sleep. There was one study, and I've got to look it up, I can't remember, that showed their sleep and your sleep cycle is affected three to 18 months post-detox from alcohol. It really affects the brain. 
patients will come in there and they sometimes are really, really struggling. And that can lead to relapse because their sleep architecture is not the same. It's not healthy sleep when they are intoxicated with alcohol, but they are often using that to fall asleep. Even though they're not getting good quality, they think they are just because they are falling asleep. And so it's really difficult sometimes in that early sobriety period to kind of convince them that their brain is healing and recovering and they will get to a normal sleep state eventually. You know, when it takes three to 18 months to recover, that's very challenging. And without sometimes help and support from their providers and their therapists kind of helping them through this, patients will go back to drinking. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And I agree with you. Gabapentin is very helpful for mood and sleep um, in general. And I think particularly anxiety, the anxiety piece. And we kind of talked about that with the cycle of addiction, that negative affect and withdrawal. And I really think Gabapentin, in fact, probably all of the AEDs, this is where they're very helpful as they really help with that part of the addiction cycle is the negative affect withdrawal aspect of it. It helps to calm down that overactive glutaminergic response that happens in withdrawal acutely and post-acutely with folks who have been drinking heavily. And if you stabilize their sleep, reduce anxiety, kind of help just iron out some of the upregulation of um, the, you know, the glutamate glutamate. receptors, your NMDA receptors and the down regulation of GABA receptors until they have that time to adjust and and just get time under their belt. I find a lot of patients actually end up weaning themselves off on these medications, but they're very, very helpful. Yep. In the beginning. Um, so I'm not too afraid of it now. I don't use gabapentin for opioid use disorder folks, but I really do find it very, very helpful for people with alcohol use disorder. I just find you, I love that you said that. I see it. They, and I tell them, I'm like, you'll know when your brain has recovered because they'll do that. It was so funny. I had this patient, very, very heavy alcohol use, and it was experiencing all of that. So difficult. Had him on the gabapentin, had him on naltrexone, was doing great. And then he came in six months into treatment. It's just like, I stopped. If he's still on the naltrexone, stopped his gabapentin. And I said, why? He's like, I don't need it anymore. I don't need it. My mood's fine. And and he was right. His mood, mood was fine. His therapist agreed. It's just like, it's like a switch just turns on. Now, most it's not that dramatic. I generally see and in other patients, it's more gradual, but I have seen that more than once. It's very, very, it's very fascinating to me. So absolutely. just touching on, there are some other adjunctive medications. There's more information to, still coming on these. I don't, I don't think I use baclofen quite as much. I don't know how often to use that. I don't use it hardly at all. Yeah. I mean, there's a very, there's kind of a sentinel paper that came out regarding the use of baclofen for patients with opioid use disorder who have hepatic cirrhosis and um, recommending the use of baclofen for these folks. So I'll often see patients who've been started on baclofen by their gastroenterologist or their hepatologist yeah. or even the hospitalist um, from, from where they've been discharged. And I don't think there's, I mean, obviously this is evidence-based. I honestly clinically have not found this medication to be very helpful. And yeah. I, I find in and of itself, it can even be harmful because it's quite sedating and people can end up getting kind of emotionally attached to it and et cetera. However, we do know it plays a role. Maybe it can be helpful for patients who have combined 
use disorders, muscle spasticity, um, cirrhosis. And I think it's definitely talking about because it's made its way into the literature for a reason. And I think it's because of its mechanism of action. It acts on GABA-B receptors. And so I think theoretically and molecularly, it should help. I just clinically don't see it to be that helpful, darling. Yeah, I have never, I've never, I've seen the exact same thing that you have. I've never started anyone up, but I've seen the same thing where periodically I'll just get a patient here or there who's been started on it. And it's the same issue. I have a more difficult time weaning it when they really no longer need it. So I would agree with you. I don't, I have a hard time finding a use for it right now. It's provocative in that you would think by its mechanism of action, it should work. But I really think more of its side effect profile, it just, I'm not finding it useful. And I'm a little concerned, you know, I've had a couple of patients ask me now, we've had this discussion before about this movement, this back to drinking, that they want to use this medication and drink. And And I'll be honest, I'm a little, I am quite, I'm very, well, you know where I'm at. I'm very, very leery of that. That does not seem to be working for them. I agree. I agreed. So the doxyzosin and clonidine. Clonidine I've used far more with opiate use disorders. I have still used clonidine some if I have a patient who's very much in the anxiety disorder and we, you know, needed to have. I don't know what your experience has been. I actually find it more and more helpful, to be honest. Um, I think like we were talking about that second phase that Dr. Yes. Koob's very interested in, the negative affect withdrawal yes. phase. I think there's a lot more CNS activation um, than we give it than we give credit for. And um, I think clonidine being, you know, having the mechanism that it has can be very helpful in some of that adrenergic response that people have. Now, we, we have to be very careful with the clonidine as a primary withdrawal agent. We don't want to use it as such. Uh, we would like to, you know, people to obviously continue to use benzodiazepines, phenobarbital, um, or maybe for people with much lower risk withdrawal, yeah. something like gabapentin or valproic acid. But clonidine is an important adjunct, I think, to people who can't seem yeah. to settle down. They're anxious, they're sweaty, they're craving, they have sweats and shakes, um, and they're not sleeping well. I think a little bit of clonidine can really help settle that down. And I've had patients um, on the inpatient service who've looked just like that, even in spite of giving them so much benzodiazepine that they're sedated, they still have an autonomic hyperactivity about them. Just a touch of clonidine can help them feel much better. And it really does seem to help with some people's anxiety and cravings in the long run. So I, I think it's worth uh, pursuing in some people. It's definitely an option. I think that, yeah, and that's very clear. This is assuming you have a patient who has already been appropriately treated for the alcohol withdrawal. And then some patients, if you're talking about as an adjunct of in addition to treatments for alcohol withdrawal. So I think that that's a good point that you bring up there. Uh, no, I do think that I find the clonidine a little bit more useful and exactly what you talk about. I think there's some people that just run a little bit higher on that autonomic hyperactivity, right? Yep. And whatever it is, they just seem to respond a little bit better to that. No, I think that's good. I think just Psychosocial treatment, absolutely. I think both of us are extremely supportive. I, you know, all my patients, I give referrals to therapy. You know, really, I kind of leave a little bit patient directive of what they will be open to, whether 
individual therapy if they really would prefer 12-step. If you have a patient who's completely against 12-step, you don't keep pushing that, right? We need to have a therapy that they're going to be comfortable with. So we work on finding therapy that's going to work for them. And there's good data that shows all are equal and efficacious. What else have you found? Yeah, no, I mean, that's the key is, you know, you think, oh, well, where should I refer my patients? And what I think a lot of providers get caught up in like, well, I don't know, you know, what do I do with these folks? And where do I send them? And, you know, basically, what the, you know, you think of motivational interviewing, and go back to those basic skills that we use when we're trying to elicit any behavior change for people, right? Whether it's losing weight, whether it's exercising more, eating healthier, getting them to change their behavior around alcohol or not even getting them to change their behavior, but helping them to tap into what they want to change about their drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the key so that they talk themselves into it, doing what they think will, will work for themselves. Now, clearly, sometimes people don't know, so you want to guide them. But a lot of times people have an idea what they think would be helpful. Um, and then there are lots of resources online through ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, to help guide you in terms of how uh, sick is this person and what level of treatment do they need. Um, that's called you know, the ASAM levels of care or the ASAM criteria. It kind of gives you these six different dimensions that you can consider when evaluating your patient and then refer them to the correct level of treatment, whether it's individual therapy, community groups, intensive outpatient, uh, residential treatment, etc. You know, you can always make the recommendation. Patients don't necessarily need to take it, but you can just say like you do for smoking cessation, you know, I really recommend that you, um, that stopping smoking would be in the best interest of your health right now. You know, tell me more about what life looks like for you not smoking and kind of working the way around um, treatment for them um, and seeing what they're willing to do. Uh, things like AA, you f- I find that it's kind of dichotomized and you have people that either love AA or hate AA. Well, they've never <laughs> Very tried much it so. They, right? Yeah. They think they'll hate it. Um, the reality is they've never really given it a good try. They just need to go to a few more meetings before they really settle in. Um, But AA really has the literature to back it up. I mean, that really famous study you're referring to really did find that all kinds of counseling and and psychosocial treatment uh, were equal. Project Match matched up CBT, motivational interviewing facilitation, excuse me, motivational interviewing and 12-step facilitation. But when you look Years and years down the road, 12-step facilitation, 12-step meetings really come out on top. So, you know, I'm a big fan of AA. I think it really works for people. However, if people are absolutely adamantly against it, there are so many, uh, so many venues for people to do community support groups, right? Especially now in the age of, of, you know, internet-sponsored groups, and we're all quite familiar now with jumping on Zoom. There's a, there's a program called In the Rooms that patients can go into and go into chat rooms and treatment recovery groups. Uh, Dharma Recovery is a Buddhist slash meditation based recovery group that a lot of people really like, especially, well, I shouldn't generalize, but I'd say a lot of millennials. millennials. Um, I know I found really that, like yeah. the Dharma, right? Smart recovery is a, is a great, um, smart, both smart recovery and life ring are more cognitive, you know, utilize a cognitive approach to, um, 
alcohol use disorder treatment, not so much AA based where you're going back and through things that have affected you and your life and others through AA. It's more analyzing why you drink and moving forward. Um, so there's lots of different um, venues to get the support you need, both in community groups and individually and through formally uh, facilitated treatment such as IOP or residential treatment. The bottom line is just recommending and helping people get into treatment, refer them, or just continue to do brief intervention and offer them medication is really key because people with alcohol use disorder don't uh, access treatment most of the time, less than 10% of them, and less than 10% of those people actually get offered medication to help with their alcohol use disorder. It's astounding. It's astounding. That's, I mean... Paula, that is so important. I think people need Uh-oh. to understand that less than 10% of patients with oh, alcohol dear. use disorder get treatment and less percent of them are receiving evidence-based treatment. That's, I think, the key there. So that is a wrap. Thank you for joining us for the Addiction Files. Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.